quite often we end up buying properties based on a budget. Of course, as life goes on, there are ways to increase our wealth. I want to talk to you about really that process. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, a co-cracker trading the dud for the diamond. We're going to dig into what it looks like to upgrade your property portfolio. It's a great conversation. I think we're going to dig into some good concepts around how to make money out of real estate and how wealth generation is really linked to the type of assets you hold inside of the property marketplace. But we've all got to start somewhere. And as we start as a property investor, quite often we end up buying properties based on a budget. Of course, as life goes on, there are ways to increase our wealth. I want to talk to you about really that process. So it should be a great show. Welcome back, regulars. Thank you for tuning in. And of course, uh, if you're new to the show, play the program in double speed, get your life back. And just remember, all of the episodes I've done on the Urban Property Investor are actually lessons on real estate. So feel free to go back. If trading the dud for the diamond doesn't sound like it rocks your world, you don't have to listen to it. You can go back in time because there's plenty of good content that pertains to other ways to analyze real estate. So uh, check it out, scroll around and don't forget to leave a review if you're listening to the show and you like it. I just had a look, we've had no reviews. In fact, really brave 5555, you're still on top as the reviewee of uh, recent times. So uh, thank you again, brave triple five for your efforts. But hey, let's do this. Uh, let's do the show. Now, I think when it comes to buying real estate, there's a few phrases which often resonate in my world. The first one is buy well, never sell. And of course, for a lot of people, that is the way of the world. They've got a lot of capital that they can deploy in the marketplace. They can choose some of the better assets floating around the real estate world. So really today's talk of trading the dud for the diamond is not necessarily something that they need to even consider. So if you've got diamonds, then you should probably just stop listening to this podcast and go do something else with your time. However, for a lot of people as well, they need to buy well but strategically sell to ultimately upgrade their assets. So they obviously need to go and buy a property based on their budget, the best property possible at that point in time of the cycle per their budget, and then at some point release that wealth and go again. And so today's conversation really pertains to really the start of someone's journey. And as we know, 
in real estate, there are cycles when it comes to how we approach investing. There are generally three which relate to the life cycle of an investor. The first is acquisitions, how much we can buy, where we can buy. The second is consolidation. And the third is really legacy, living off the means of our investment. And of course, for a lot of people, they're never going to save themselves wealthy, so they need to embrace the concept of leverage. And of course, leverage begins with a lot of people when they buy their first home. They're borrowing 95%, deploying a small amount of capital, and ultimately have a threshold of what they can buy. And of course, it's very natural to go through this. So the younger you are, generally you don't have a huge amount of money saved up. You've got a very small deposit. And of course, the type of properties you're exposed to are very, very different to perhaps if you are much older with a higher income and more capital. And of course, for a lot of property investors as well, they uh, have a small deposit uh, need to borrow at 90%, even get lender's mortgage insurance to, to put their foot on a property. As we know today, the idea of borrowing bucket loads of money and getting access to cheap money and having huge deposits is a tough ask. And so again, what we need to do is not invest like it was the year 2000, we need to invest based on some logic which is really based on the current cycle. And I think the cycle really changed when the Royal Commission changed the way borrowing worked, that it was it's now very, very difficult for people to access a lot of serviceability and a lot of money just based on, uh, you know, fudging some numbers and sending it off to the bank. So acquisitions is really all about, you know, using the banks, leveraging the best we can and getting to where we need to go. And of course, that process of buying a property, adding some value to it, watching it grow can take a fair period of time. In fact, you know, it's fair to say that you've got to give yourself 15 years quite often before you can upgrade your strategy. And that's where we get to really today's conversation. Quite often we go through what is known as consolidation. And consolidation can include upgrading and consolidating your position in the real estate marketplace. Consolidation is often referred to as debt reduction, but certainly as I've consolidated my assets over the years, it's both a mixture of debt reduction, debt elimination, and also trading the dud for a diamond and consolidating my position in the real estate world. And as I say, like when I say dud, I just mean simply a get started piece of real estate. Uh, obviously, there are plenty of market lemons out there which don't work. You should actually trade them up ASAP. 
But certainly if you buy well and strategically sell, you would have bought something which is worthy and is going to get you a good rate of performance. But really the idea of consolidating is simply looking for a higher level of performance and moving around the monopoly board, so to speak, in a higher and superior direction. When I bought my first property, uh, it was, you know, $30,000 deposit down, which took me a long time to save. And, uh, you know, I used a, a first home buyer grant to get into the market. And really, ever since that day, I've been leveraging and upgrading ever since. And today I own some of, you know, what would be considered very A-class properties, you know, surrounding Sydney Harbour. And really, all I've done is leverage my way to that space using a consolidation strategy, which is simply buy a property and once it reaches its best level of performance, consider what the options are to go again. Now, obviously, there are a few caveats around what I'm going to talk about today. One caveat is if you don't have a lot of time left on your time horizon, what I'm talking about is also quite irrelevant because if you've got one last chance to borrow money, uh, you've got a considerable deposit, uh, you don't need to consider an upgrade strategy. You just buy the best possible property you possibly can. And, uh, you know, certainly there are ways to look at real estate that way. But, you know, certainly a lot of people who listen to this show are young and uh, they've got plenty of time on their hands, which is great, which is what you kind of need to be a upgrader. Now, the other sort of caveat to the conversation is don't get bored with your investments. A lot of people misunderstand investing. The biggest problem you face as a property investor when it comes to buy and hold real estate is really the problem of time. Time in the market, time is your friend, time for real estate to work and grow and improve. So be very wary of really what we call the six-year property itch because it does come along and a lot of people dub themselves out of perfectly good opportunities and surrender properties, which are perfectly fine, and then can't rebuy what they have surrendered because they get very bored with their real estate. Now, remember, if we're going to talk about upgrading real estate, we're going to talk about a level of performance to get to the upgrade. And so be very, very wary of just getting bored with your investments. A lot of people love to tinker. A lot of people really need drama in their life to feel like their life is uh, exciting. And one of the best ways to create drama in your life is to simply manufacture it and uh, take a very good piece of real estate, add some personal bias, emotion and drama and off you go. You, you've, you've come up with some sort of harebrained way to, to analyze the assets you've got and let a perfectly good property go from your portfolio.
So a lot of people obviously get bored of their investments and don't know how to even self-analyze their real estate. And of course, due to this kind of lack of skill and lack of information, often let themselves basically sell off a diamond instead of selling off a dart. And I, I had this really prior to, to COVID where the real estate market was very stagnant. It was going sideways. And I often say to people that the hardest time to hold real estate is when it's going sideways, when it's boring, because people become very emotional about the boredom and, uh, you know, prior to sort of 2020, when the market really sort of took off, you know, a lot of people got out. They were just sort of bored and, and uh, you know, and, and looking back, you know, it's cost a lot of those people close to a million dollars because the property was perfect. They were just emotional. They were not patient and uh, cheated themselves out of some serious dough. So time is the biggest problem as a property investor. We know that. And uh, the longer we hold real estate, the more it compounds on itself. And again, if you look at the concept of being a property investor, short term is 7 to 12 years, medium term 13 to 20 years, and long term 21 plus years. Anything uh, before that, Trading is 12 to 24 months. That's really a development strategy. And speculating is really that one to six year itch that uh, you've bought a property um, and, you know, you're expecting basically a result day one. So just remember, you've got to, if you're going to upgrade, I always recommend a medium term strategy, which is, really that 13 year plus, you'll really get the best results doing it that way. Can we do it faster? Yes, we can. To do it faster, we're going to have to force some value on the real estate and also force the value on ourselves, on our personal income profile. We'll talk a little bit about that. But as we know, Australia is amongst the most expensive real estate uh, markets in the world. And of course, uh, we are a high growth country. Australia grows all the time. There's people coming here left, right and center. It's a lot of activity. It is really a high growth uh, country compared to some of countries around the world, which are very low growing. They don't have thousands of migrants arriving every day and needing thousands of properties to be built. They don't have a new person added to their population every 47 seconds. So because we're a high growth country, the investor has often a paradox. Lending is based around serviceability. Competition is constant because we're a high growth country. Uh, and investment is both based around serviceability and leverage. And for a lot of people, they don't actually have a lot of capital to deploy in the marketplace. And of course, the paradox, if you like, is the best real estate actually requires a lot of capital to be deployed and also a better level of serviceability. 
So to get to the A-grade real estate, it takes a little bit of jumping uh, and upgrading from the effective dud to the diamond. It's just a natural uh, life progression. And again, for a lot of people, it doesn't need to be that way because perhaps they're highly skilled, they've got a lot of money, uh, they've got a high-paying job, they earn half a million dollars a year. Uh, you know, you don't need to go through a get-started phase. But for other people, it's very much a get-started process. You know, you work your way up in this world. Real estate's no different. It is a game of working your way through, uh, you know, economic change. And really, we are now into economic boats fueled by access to capital. Those that can put large amounts of money into a deal will get a better deal than those that really are, you know, scraping pennies together to form a deposit to secure um, a get started piece of real estate. It's just common sense to understand it that way. There are two economic boats. And again, you could look at, you know, obviously any city in Australia and you've got the better real estate suburbs and you've got the less impressive real estate suburbs. Ultimately, the rate of growth is very different between asset types and suburb types. And of course, we are in a bit of a race. It is a, is a time and money race and we can't effectively, uh, you know, our time is limited. And again, I come back to the conversation that the more time you've got on your hands, the more ability for you to upgrade in your investment consolidation phase. The less time, you've just got to make the best of what you've got because you do run out of the ability to borrow based on age eventually. Now, again, Australia is not a cheap real estate marketplace. If we look at the average dwelling across Australia, the average price is over $900,000, the average price. And in fact, over the last quarter, the average, the mean, rose by $25,000. So most people can't save an extra $25,000 in three months to even keep up with the average. Now, the average is different to the median. Remember, Year 10 uh, maths, mean, median, mode. The mean is the average. The median is the midpoint of the marketplace. And again, the midpoint is a real price point. It's what real people are spending out in the marketplace. The median, if you like, is just the set of numbers that most appear in the middle. And effectively, it reflects the market center. And it's a very, very important number in Australian real estate because the best way to understand the market center or the median price is effectively better real estate is often above the median dwelling price. Less impressive real estate is below the market median dwelling price. So if we were to take Sydney's median dwelling price, the midpoint of the market, it's 1.1 million. So if you're going to buy real estate below 1.1 million, you need to understand that that is not the midpoint of the market 
place at all in Sydney. Buying above 1.1, you're probably going to get effectively better real estate. So it's a paradox because most investors could not afford to spend above $1.1 million to buy the better real estate in Sydney. So if we're going to go to the real estate below the mid-center of the marketplace, then we've got to have a good game plan. And again, that game plan can be an underpriced, undervalued pocket of Sydney in that example, an undervalued, underpriced piece of real estate in that example, an area which is going to be the next to become part of the midpoint of the marketplace. Uh, And of course, we're going to have to also consider that if we do drift into the lower price percentile of the median, that maybe that strategy is just a strategy for a first acquisition to then consolidate later. This is the conversation. So again, if we look at the midpoint or uh, market centre of Melbourne, it's 776. Of Brisbane, 761. Of Adelaide, 691. Of Perth, 618. And again... They're the top five cities with the most people in Australia. You can see the center dwelling value of those marketplaces. So above it, you logically can understand that if something's above the midpoint of the marketplace, there must be something very good about it. The consensus is built into the price. If something's at the bottom of the uh, price percentile, There's obviously a reason why it's coming last. Why is it the least expensive property below the center of the marketplace? Is that a good thing or is that actually a bad thing? Like why is it not at the center of the market? And of course, if we were to look at, for example, housing, if you were to look for a house below, say, $500,000 in Brisbane today, it's less than 1.5% of the market. 1.5% of houses in Brisbane today are below $500,000. I would imagine, really, most of those houses, for example, are actually houses that probably need to be knocked down. Really, that $500,000 represents land value. If you were to look below $700,000 in Brisbane, it's around 7% of the marketplace. Can we still invest in that 7% of the marketplace below $700,000? Make money knowing that if we do make money and we give ourselves enough time and we give ourselves enough ability, can we actually upgrade to a better asset later? Today, I want to talk to you about that because it's a strategy I use. I use this strategy myself. I recently did an upgrade. I actually had a one-bedroom apartment uh, in Brisbane. I watched it go from its floor value to its ceiling value, which I'll explain. Uh, In other words, I bought it at the right price. I sold it at the right price. I've taken the gain, less the capital gain, to form a deposit with some other savings to jump into a much better piece of real estate. I've upgraded uh, 
because I've bought a property at its floor value and sold it at its ceiling value. But again, like the same concept can be, you know, explained if we went to the housing market in Melbourne. Less than 2% of stock is below 600,000. There's actually uh, 15% of products sitting between 600 and $800,000. But uh, uh, again, it's like, how do we buy below the center of the market, uh, buy a piece of real estate, watch it perform, add some value to it, and do we actually hold on to that real estate and make sure it's it's perfectly fine for our retirement? Do we actually flip the deal, sell out of it, and upgrade because we are going through a different economic cycle? It's very much the conversation. And of course, if you were to just simply imagine a monopoly board, you know how a monopoly board works. You know the best real estate is the sort of dark blues and greens. You know, the second best real estate is the yellows and reds, third best orange and pink. And of course, uh, the sky blue and the sort of darker brown uh, are the least impressive properties on the monopoly board. So if we want a higher return in our life, eventually we have to migrate our money to the best possible marketplaces. And obviously, if we are an investor, we're borrowing money, we're leveraging, we have a ceiling of what we can borrow. And so this is going to create trade-offs. It could be a location trade-off, a neighborhood trade-off, an amenity trade-off, an infrastructure trade-off, socioeconomic trade-off, age of dwelling trade-off, a size of dwelling trade-off, a dwelling type trade-off. These are some of the examples of what you give up when you have a limited budget in real estate. And of course, uh, when it comes to investment, quite often the trade-off is also leaving very efficient real estate areas uh, in the inner and middle ring. You know, a lot of people can't afford the middle ring of Sydney today. You know, the average house price, the median house price, the middle of that market is more like $2 million. And again, uh, you know, a lot of people need to start their investments in new suburbia, new communities as opposed to run-down suburbia. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a way of growing wealth. And uh, a lot of people get fixated on the concept that you must buy the best property that you can possibly ever buy, but don't care into consideration that a lot of people just simply can't afford the best possible property in the market and they're going to have to go through some wealth building. And you should buy the best property you can buy for your budget in the best possible marketplace, but sometimes a lot of property investors feel alienated that really the the conversation is the most aspirational properties do grow the best Really, you've got to go, okay, this is a two-step strategy to get where I need to go, not a one-step strategy when it comes to property investments. And of course, a lot of real estate today is under threat. You know, if we were to look at, you know, gun 
apartments, the type of apartments you want to buy in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Newcastle, Canberra, they're under threat. They're not cheap to buy. Uh, if you were to look at some of the middle ring houses in suburbia, which you know are 10Ks from the city, of major metropolitan cities, some of the best cities in the world, highly ranked cities, livable cities. You know, it's very difficult to be 15Ks from Melbourne and buy, uh, you know, a gun house for, you know, 600 grand. It's not going to happen. So for a lot of people, the idea of getting to the next phase is really their objective. It's a two-step process. And uh, when we look at the extreme values that can be created out of real estate, again, there is some economic principles as to why the best areas perform the best when it comes to real estate. Step two is to get to those areas for a lot of people. And uh, really to understand it, you've got to think about, well, when you remove investors and first home buyers from the stockpile of what is produced in real estate, i.e. product is produced for housing and it's really designed at an affordable rate and really the bulk uh, production of real estate is for first home buyers. And of course, investors can jump on that stockpile as well. Uh, when you remove first home buyers really from a suburb's profile, in other words, they can't afford to buy there, then ultimately you remove the mass production of real estate. And so less stock is ultimately produced in that neighborhood. And of course, eventually you see a price extreme off the back of that, that there really is no way to create affordable supply in a suburb. And so the suburb just lives off its existing supply principles and ultimately the rate of growth accelerates in those areas. So again, a, a, a problem for property investors is quite often they can't keep up with those suburbs. So they have to go really where there is more supply and have to navigate through that minefield to go through step one, knowing that there is a step two to the conversation. And I think that's really a big, big part of the idea of property investment. So there are some principles of upgrading, obviously selling to then buying, and some powerful questions you need to ask yourself. And again, this is not about getting bored of a perfectly good property until it's matured and gentrified and done its thing this is about well okay i get it there's a game a monopoly board to play and i want to play the game i want to end up with the best real estate in my back pocket so the principle of upgrading you've got to ask yourself some powerful questions first one what are the tax implications like how is that going to work what kind of capital gain am i going to play uh, what are the transaction costs? What is the actual market outlook? What is my tolerance to actually doing this all again? Like, could I actually stomach 
actually leveraging again when I've just gone through a cycle of actually buying a property. Probably one of the most powerful questions is, what can you actually re-borrow to sell and buy? And of course, could you actually borrow more than the property that you have today and its current worth? A lot of people like the idea of trading up real estate. Their property is now worth a million dollars. But when they go to their mortgage broker, they can only re-borrow 600000 So why would you let go of a million dollar property to go and re-buy a $600,000 property? A lot of that has to do when people bought real estate, the type of loan they first got approved to borrow money from, the rate of the day, so to speak. So these are really powerful questions when it comes to upgrading. Probably the next thing you've got to work out is are you still in acquisitions or are you actually in consolidation? Are you over-invested? Are you under-invested? Or are you invested in liabilities? These are very, very good questions to ask. And liabilities are really those type of properties which have a lot of basically diminishing return. They're not growing. They're lemons. uh, They're full of costs and they're going nowhere. Not to be mistaken with perfectly good properties which just need time to grow. It's quite often a balancing act to understand it and it's really mathematics to to understand the difference. But uh, really... When it comes to understanding the whole concept, it's about buying power. Buying power is an asset. What you can borrow is an asset. Obviously, a lot of people realized that concept when rates dropped down to literally 1%. Everyone went, I know that I can borrow more. That's an asset. If I borrow more when rates are so low, I'm going to be able to upgrade my asset base. And if I upgrade my asset base, in theory, if I don't bite off more than I can chew, I'm going to have better market exposure with better assets, which ultimately creates more wealth. And so if we turn back the clock, when the Reserve Bank dropped the cash rate to virtually zero, people were out getting, you know, one and a half, two percent home loans. Uh, everyone was upgrading their asset base. And of course, off the back of that, we had a lot of increases in prices as well, which ultimately meant that a lot of people paid too much for real estate off the back of that experience. But buying power is an asset, and we've got to think of it as exactly that. And of course, when we think about buying power being an asset, we've got to then distill down Where is the interest rate cycle? Uh, How much do I earn? And uh, how could I use that piece of information to steer where I need to go as a property investor? And of course, the principle of upgrading real estate is the first property we bought, we would need to have bought something half decent because, again, if we've bought a market lemon, we're not going to have a gain to use to help upgrade our position. And of course, buying well comes down to being able to force some value on real estate. And I'm a big believer of 
just using the gift of the gab to find a deal um, which has a bit of a discount. You know, why uh, not just ask for a discount? Try and find a deal which basically is underpriced. Or even a renovation or a new build which is underpriced. Like if someone else is overcapitalized and uh, they've done all the hard work, uh, there's a discount in, in that logic. Obviously, you can force value through building a property, renovating a property, or even through pre-construction uh, of a property. You can force the value. You can buy well. But all of that is all about buying well. Even if you speak to the greatest renovators in the world, they'll tell you it's all in the buying. When you build, it's all in the buying. When you do pre-construction, it's all in the buying. When you buy a discount in the market, it's all in the buying. So obviously, if we buy step one very well, the first property, it's going to accelerate the turnaround time to get to step two, which is selling the first property and jumping uh, to the second property. Obviously, the principle only works if you've made a capital gain. You're not going to be upgrade based on uh, really, you know, you, you need the gain to help form a higher deposit to get more capital into the marketplace. And, uh, you know, I think if you want to understand some of the mathematics around what I'm talking about, I would go back and listen to Holding On to Real Estate, episode 161 of this podcast. And if you want to understand capital gains tax, I would probably go back to episode 160, Understanding Capital Gains Tax. Between those two episodes and this episode, it's like it's like a family of episodes which all link together. Obviously, the other assumption is that uh, you know you just can't simply recycle equity and buy more real estate because again, if you are equity rich and you've got lots of servicing, and you can again deploy capital into the market and build a portfolio, you should go probably down that road. When it comes to upgrading real estate, it's really you're locked. You can't do anything else. So you start to go, okay, I'm locked up. I'm stuck with this property. Do I like this property or not? If I was to unlock the one asset by selling it, capitalize on a gain, could I actually borrow more money to invest? What could I borrow if what I could borrow allowed me to go into a better marketplace, a better suburb and a better asset class, is that a wise thing to do? These are all the questions you've got to ask. But effectively, the principle of this is buying power is an asset and you need to go, well, okay, I've got a tangible asset. Do I trade that in for more buying power? And what can that buying power generate? Obviously, the concept of upgrading is all based around the law of demand. And again, if we think about a real estate marketplace, it has a demand curve. And what can happen is we might buy in an area which is far more based on get started, 
momentum, futurism of suburbia, it grows in value whilst a very traditional marketplace may do nothing. And really all of a sudden we've got a relative amount of growth coming out of a area gentrifying, but then it reaches its ceiling whilst another marketplace, which is in the same city, which is ultimately a better suburb, has uh, remained low in price. And so you always get this kind of flexion point in real estate, particularly in the same macro marketplace of certain places doing better than others and allowing for uh, flexion points, I don't even know if that's a word, for you to jump into another suburb. So the demand curve really pertains to cities, suburbs, and property types. Of course, as I alluded to, this is where we understand the demand curve actually allows for an asset ceiling and a floor price in the same place. So you can effectively get a price ceiling on uh, one asset and a price floor on another asset, and really that's your crossover point. And I, I recently did this, right? Like I had an um, apartment I bought up in Brisbane. Um, yeah, I you know, when I bought it, it wasn't a hell of a lot of money. Brisbane's apartment market has been one of the best growing uh, asset classes in Australia of the last four years. Um, I think it's still one of the best growing asset classes right now. Uh, I saw that we went from a floor price to a ceiling price. Uh, I know that potentially I could stick around and get a little bit more money, but I'm a believer you leave a penny on the table for the next person. I traded the asset. I then went into a floor price on a property which I had bought uh, at a effective discount in the same city. And so I took a ceiling price and swapped it for a floor price price on on another asset that asset is a four bedroom property and so i've taken a ceiling of a one bedroom unit and plugged it into a four bedroom uh property and obviously i'm paying capital gains tax selling costs transition costs it's a lot of costs i'm losing the reason i'm doing it is i believe the floor value plus the rate of growth on the next asset is going to outperform the ceiling value and the rate of growth on the apartment. So fundamentally what causes price ceilings and price floors is really demand. And uh, demand swings in roundabouts all, all the time. It's really hard to forecast what demand is, people moving from the country to the city, the urban to the suburban, people needing, uh, millennials needing four-bedroom properties to have babies instead of one-bedroom properties, um, you know, coastal 
suburbs becoming more trendier than treeside suburbs. Like all of this stuff is how the real estate market demand curve works. And so really when you property trade, you're just really in tune with the demand curve, like where the floors and ceilings are in price. And of course, uh, you know, if we were to study that concept, you know, a lot of Australians are moving between census to census. You know, close to 35% of Australians are, are moving address every five years. So you've got uh, a lot of demand movement that comes through to sub, sub, suburbs. And of course, states and cities have their own different cycle. You know, Adelaide cycles different to Brisbane cycle, Sydney cycles different to Melbourne cycle. And you get these demand relationships that unfold based on interstate migration, overseas migration, supply, housing finance, interest rates, uh, GDP um, at a local level. Uh, so you get all of these kind of different flexion points. I don't even know if flexion's a word. I'm going to have to Google that after the show. Was I talking about a right word that exists in English? Flexion. Uh, you get these points which, uh, which happen. And, and again, like the migration of money is, is very much around the idea, okay, well, I've made a lot of money in this asset class. Is this asset class going to get me where I need to go? Do I need to sell it and swap cities? Do I need to sell it and swap suburbs? Or do I need to sell it and swap asset types? For me, the latest trade I did was swapping asset types. I went from a one-bedroom to a four-bedroom asset type. Same marketplace. I didn't leave Brisbane. I just simply swapped asset types. And again, um, maybe some of this will make more sense as I get to the sort of end of the podcast. But, uh, you know, obviously you could go to an undervalued city. If you're happy investing there, uh, you take a price ceiling in a city which has reached its price max and you move it to a city which has uh, at its price floor, uh, floor. So that's the model. That's the name of the game. And, uh, you know, for a lot of us, you know, getting involved in changing suburb, dwelling, or city is really comes down to a model. And I always teach the MAD model. Yes, the MAD model model theory of mad i often refer to it just from my own memory uh, as two mad cats it was always taught to me as two mad cats if you can understand two mad cats believe it or not you're going to understand the theory of upgrading now the first mad cat is just as simple as it sounds money advancement and demand Money, advancement, and demand. So to do an upgrade, we need to understand and address the first mad cat, money, advancement, and demand. Money is just the money cycle, the cash rate. Cash rate obviously affects the interest rate of the day. And as I alluded to in the past, 
if interest rates go down, it's a lot easier to upgrade your asset base. It's as simple as that sounds. If interest rates go up, it's a lot harder to upgrade your interest rate. Uh, yeah, up- upgrade your asset base rather. Obviously, uh, the other part of the puzzle is advancement, personal finances, your income basically. And again, like as you go through life, you go through the ability to earn more money. Your career advances, you grow different income streams, you improve your financial skills, your salary wage starts to increase because you're more confident, you're worth more to the market, you are better educated and have a higher skill base. And of course, if we were to track how what people earn in their mid-20s to what they earn in their mid-40s, it's chalk and cheese. Uh, And of course, you might buy a property in your mid-20s, which by virtue of your ability to get into the market is a great property. There's nothing wrong with the property. Uh, It's not the best possible property, but it's a great start you get your foot in the door. And you'll often hear older people say to younger people, just get your foot in the door. And it is very, very true. It's really the model. Like we've got to get our foot in the door, but perhaps when you're in your mid-30s or in your mid-40s, you earn more money. You're worth more to the jobs market. You're earning a higher salary. And The point of the conversation is you might have a piece of real estate which you bought based on different economic principles of the younger version of you. You've bought a property, it's done well, but is it time to use the fact that you earn more today? If you freed up the debt which you hold on the asset you bought in a different economic cycle, could you actually use the buying power principle that buying power is an asset and upgrade when uh, it comes to your investment philosophy this is the conversation and of course demand is a is a big part of the cycle obviously i just explained the demand curve but there is the principle that also as time goes on some real estate starts to not actually perform to the level it has performed in the past. And again, performance decline in real estate is a real thing, i.e. the first 15 years can be high performance. The second 15 years, your performance starts to to wane. And you've got to then go, okay, if I'm going to trade, I'm, I'm actually assessing my real estate's ability to perform. So I often teach this. There are three obstacles to performance, functional obsolence, economic obsolence, and physical obsolence. Obsolence is just a tense of obsolete. So is my property functionally obsolete, economically obsolete, or physically obsolete? These are the questions, right? You've got to go, okay, well, I don't have a functional investment property. It's no longer functional. Like if I was to 
renovated, it's it's going to cost too much to create functionality. And, uh, you know, even when I looked at my one-bedroom apartment, which I bought in a different era, the new one-bedroom apartments in the marketplace just smoke the functionality of that one-bedroom apartment. It was dysfunctional. And the reason I took the ceiling value for the asset's price was I was very concerned around this property is dysfunctional. It has, compared to more modern properties being produced, less ability to function at a higher rate of growth. So the reason or the logic I chose to move was functionality, functional obsolescence. The functionality was becoming obsolete. The next is economic obsolescence. So obviously when I looked at the real estate, I was like, okay, uh, it's had good growth, but will the growth that I received in the past mirror the future? And uh, I could see some economic obsolescence uh, when I looked into or over the horizon based on financial calculations. And uh, physical obsolescence was really another driver as to why I decided to move on from that property. The building, which it was part of, uh, was 45 years old and starting to get all sorts of problems associated with it. It was worn out, it was outdated, and all of these problems were starting to be part of the economic impact on the property's ability to perform. I would collect rent and the rent I would collect would go to a repair, basically, of the overall building. And so uh, when I looked into why that property performed over the last 15 years, and I, I guess, relay that over what the future 15 years looks like, I see a disconnect. So I take the ceiling value and I reinvest it in a new property that has better bones, basically. And so that's the concept. And of course, um, for a lot of people, real estate starts to have failed urbanism. They're never to be gentrified. Uh, properties in declining neighborhoods. And these are some of the red flags that really potentially you've bought the wrong asset to begin with. And, you know, maybe you're just better off going, you know what, there's a small little up, uplift there at the moment. Probably better off just maybe even restarting and restarting at step one, uh, which is, you know, if you've got a lot of environmental impacts on the asset that you've bought near crime and safety, congestion, lack of movement, inadequate housing, a lot of social housing, social issues in the neighborhood and a lack of good public spaces. It's very possible that you've bought in an area which probably is not going to perform and then you've got to go, okay, well, I'm still at step one. I know I've got to get to step two and step one doesn't even look good. Uh, you want step one to to look good as well, as much as step two. And again, all I'm saying here is sometimes, as we get started, you know, we've got to we've got to realize it's a two step process. So, 
obviously market demand is the first mad cat along with money uh, and advancement and also market demand, demand, mad, M-A-D, an acronym. So what is good market demand? Well, you know, you, you've, you want the best building, uh, the best land, uh, the best architecture, you want uh, the best infrastructure, you want the best stability in a marketplace, you want good levels of fixed supply, you want a nice street, a nice suburb, and a nice city. These are all some of the, the principles around what good market demand is. Now, to understand the trade-up concept, the most important lesson I can ever give you in real estate is that real estate is about the rate of growth and that ultimately is the most important factor. That's where, uh, you know, often I would suggest that real estate is a weighing machine, the rate, the heaviness of growth, as opposed to just a fad, a voting machine. And we see fads come and go in real estate all the time. Now, I teach the Forex growth model, four times growth, four times growth theory. The rate of growth is influenced by local factors. The rate, the rate is the percentage. This is the most important principle of real estate. That's why it's the opening line of the Forex growth plan. The rate of growth is the most important factor in real estate. Okay, the rate of growth. The rate of growth is influenced by local factors. The length of growth is impacted by market factors. The magnitude of growth is affected by emotional factors and the creation of growth is defined by property factors. Can you force value on the real estate? Can you build and create value? Can you renovate and create value? Can you discount buy and create value? These are defined by property factors. Now, it's an important lesson because the rate of growth is a big reason why you would trade up. It's in fact, really the only reason you would trade up. And again, this goes back to what is known as Rule 72. That, you know, if you had a rate of growth of 7% compounding every year on a property investment, you know, it would take about 10 years for the property to double. If you had a property which grew at 5% per annum, compounding on itself, it's going to take 15 years to double. Now, when investors get going with no capital and limited serviceability, generally, if they still buy well, they're going to get a great result of around 5% per annum, which means they're getting their real estate to double in 15 years, which is excellent. That's actually a good result. That's the midpoint of the marketplace. That's at a bare-ass minimum what we want from our real estate investments. I always teach people if that's the worst you did, that's absolutely a fantastic result. What we don't want is 1%, 2% capital growth because it's less than inflation and it means ultimately your real estate will never grow. It'll take 50 years to grow and you are going backwards. If you're getting a 5% capital growth rate, PropTech actually purports that that is the midpoint of the marketplace. So that's that's good. That's what we want. And 
So if we're going to the median price, buying below it and still getting a 5% capital growth rate, that's an extraordinary result. Now, the opposite is obviously real estate, which performs at a 7% growth rate. If you go to the midpoint of the marketplace, the median price, the real estate, which is going to perform at 7% plus per annum is going to be higher than the midpoint of the marketplace. It's just, just the way it works. So the better real estate is higher than the median price, the uh, the the less impressive real estate below the median price of the marketplace. And so the rate of growth improves either side of the midpoint, the center of the market. Now, Again, when you're starting out, you're probably buying below the midpoint of the marketplace. Uh, if you can buy above it, it's not such a bad thing because you'll probably get a higher rate of growth. And again, like when I go and look at some real estate and then analyze local factors to determine the rate of growth, I have my rule of 10 which is basically the 10 local factors that determine the rate of growth. They are the city, the suburb, the street, the land, the building, the design, the uh, supply, the socioeconomics, the stability, and the infrastructure. All of that tells me the rate of growth I'm going to get on real estate. Now, I have a metric to score that rate of growth, and uh, when I use the metric, my scoring metric, my rule of 10, which links to my 4X growth plan, uh, and I go back and I track real estate and its performance, I know uh, that it has a correlation. And I can look at real estate and go, okay, uh, that real estate has done really, really well. So at the moment, I'm looking at a property which um, was picked up back in 08 it's now done 15 years of performance it's a medium term investment that i own if i track my rule of 10 i uh when i bought the property i was i was predicting i would get a six percent growth rate i ended up getting a 6.17 percent growth rate so pretty well bang on it was an entry-level property at the time. Uh, it has doubled in value in 12 years, which was really the goal of the 6% capital growth rate. Today, though, because it's 15 years in, the 6% growth rate is still unfolding and the asset's gone from basically uh, 415 to uh closer to $950,000. So it's it's done its thing. It's performing really, really well. And now I go, has that reached its ceiling? Uh, and should I take that ceiling, sell it, and go find a floor? That's basically the, the logic, right? And so when I look at the asset and I look at what next, I can apply the same logic. My rule of 10, do I go, the, the city's great, it's improved, will it score a higher rate of growth? Surrounds, suburb, it's going great. Street, 
uh, it's going great. Is the building actually declining? Does Is the functional obsolescence still keeping up? In other words, what I'm trying to do is go, well, I've got a 6% rate thus far, which means real estate fundamentally doubles in 12 years, which is brilliant. Uh, it's better than the average that prop tech reports. It, it kicks ass on the average. The question I now have is, will I still get a 6% capital growth rate moving forward? Or will that dip down to a 5% growth rate or a 4% growth rate? These are, these are the questions you have when you look at trading your real estate. Now, if the real estate just does its thing and sticks at 6%, I'm keeping the real estate. If it's dropping to 4%, I'm questioning whether it's time to take the ceiling price I have and go and find a new floor in the marketplace. And uh, that's the model of upgrading. So let's simulate an upgrade uh, having a chat on the podcast. Imagine you had a $750,000 property today it's got a 5% rate of growth. Or you could sell that property, which you have a $750,000, which is its ceiling value. You could take the gain and you could go buy an $850,000 property, which actually is above the midpoint of the marketplace and get you a higher rate of capital growth. In this simulation, a 7% growth rate. Okay, so the $750,000 property, let's assume we paid $500,000 for it, okay? So we paid 500, it's now worth 750. Uh, we've had a 5% rate of growth. We now questioning whether it's time to upgrade our strategy. Let's just go through some numbers, right? So obviously, uh, let's assume that you would pay 24% for capital gains tax. And again, if you don't understand capital gains tax, go and listen to my episode. So let's start again. We bought, we bought a property for 500. We can sell it for 750. And if we were to keep it at 750 today, it's going to get a 5% growth rate from the 750 point onwards. Uh, let's imagine we go, okay, well, we're going to sell the $250,000 to get the $250,000 gain. We're going to roughly pay about 24% capital gains tax. And, and again, if you don't understand capital gains tax, please go and listen to that episode. Basically, you get a discount, you apply it to your personal tax rate and effectively you it spits out about 24%. So you're going to pay 24% of that $250,000 in the game. Plus you're going to pay 4% to go and buy a new property in new stamp duty or thereabouts and probably 3% to sell the property basically to use a real estate agent to get you a good price for the sale. So effectively, if we were to... Do the maths, uh, we, we pay our 24% gain on $250,000, we uh, pay new stamp duty for a new property, we pay uh, the uh, 
basically margin to sell the property of 3%. The total loss in costs of the $250,000 is actually a lot of money. It's $116,500. But, this is the but, we've now got $133,500 in our back pocket, which we can use to form another deposit and go and buy a property. Now, assuming we also get our original deposit back from the $500,000 property we bought, uh, we've got some money to go and invest. And all of a sudden, uh, when we bought that first $500,000 property, which went on to become $750,000, let's say we used a 20% deposit, that's $100,000. We've got that money back. Uh, We've got that $100,000 back uh, because that, that was obviously our deposit um, and uh, that comes back to us because we wouldn't have had debt on that section of, of that original step one uh, purchase. So now we've got sort of $233,000 to go and play the real estate game. And of course, uh, the goal here is to go, well, the property I bought, my get started property has got a 5% growth rate, which is a great growth rate, by the way. Uh, but now let's upgrade to a much fancier suburb and uh, a higher price point property. So if we went to some loan calculators, assuming we've you know we've improved uh, a little bit everywhere, we can now borrow a larger sum of money because ultimately we have a larger deposit. So it is fair to say we could jump from the ceiling price of 750 on the first asset, to the floor price of the second asset, which is now 850, using the greater level of deposit we now have, and go to the second mad cat. Remember, this is two mad cat theory. First mad cat is money, uh, basically, the idea of attaining more. Uh, wealth out of our job and advancement and demand. The second mad cat is the mean absolute deviation. It's an acronym, MAD. Effectively, the mean absolute deviation is, in simple terms, how far apart are we? And obviously, it's really the average distance between individual values in a data set using the mean of that data set. And so the second mad cat, the mean absolute deviation. So if we were to go the new asset, $850,000, but we know it's got a higher rate of growth and we can use some formulas that I have to determine a better rate of growth. It's a little bit crystal ball, but it can be done. Growth at 7% using uh, using some formulas. So the new asset, $850,000 plus the growth at 7%. Compounding equals the future value less the $116,500, which was the cost to change the asset. The absolute deviation from the mean. This is what we want. The second mad cat, mean absolute deviation. So let's bring this home. 
keeping the first property at a 5% growth rate, 5% compounding on $750,000. In 10 years, the property, if we just kept it and didn't trade, would be worth $1,110,000 based on a uh, growth rate of 4%. So, sorry, I explained that wrong. Keeping the first property and if it's going to go in decline. Now, remember functional obsolescence, um, economic obsolescence, and physical obsolescence. So we assess the first property and we go, okay, well, we've been getting a 5% growth rate on this thing. It's done pretty good, but will it get a 5% growth rate moving forward? Will it actually dip to 4%? So the first number we, we look at is the mean absolute deviation going the other way. If the 5% growth rate becomes a 4% growth rate. After 10 years, that $750,000 property is now $1,110,000. If it was to maintain its 5% growth rate rhythm, which is still a good growth rate, the $750,000 real estate becomes a $1,221,000 piece of real estate, which is great, which is awesome. And again, um, you that's just not even bothering selling and rebuying and paying capital gains tax. But if we were to sell and buy at a better rate of growth, then uh, let's look at the mean absolute deviation, the second mad cat. If we were to get a rate of growth of 5% on the $850,000 property, which is a better property, uh, at a higher price point, and we were to mathematically minus the 116500 which we paid to sell the first property, uh, because we have uh, bought a property at a higher price it's and applied the 5% growth rate, the new property's value less the uh, capital gain, resale loss, uh, and the um, new t stamp duty that we would have to pay, then all of a sudden our new value of our property is $1,268,000. So we would roughly be $46,000 better off by simply upgrading the price and keeping the level of capital growth at 5%. But what happens if it becomes 7%? Well, that's a good question. So let's apply the same logic. We've got an $850,000 property. It's now getting a 7% growth rate, but it's cost us $116,500 in cost to upgrade. What happens after 10 years? The property is now worth $1,555,000. So after 10 years, if we were to upgrade, the long and the short of this, we would actually be $330,000 better off by actually doing the upgrading strategy, assuming everything comes together. And again, there's a lot of caveats with this conversation. You've got to make sure you're not bored. You've got to make sure that... Uh, you know, you really indeed can go and find a higher rate of growth. You've got to buy the first property well and you've got to buy the second property well. 
you've got to look for a price floor and a price ceiling. And you've got to really understand how the flexion demand curve works to really know how to guide your way to the next investment. Hence why most people actually will not be able to, to do that because it create, there's a lot of skill in that process. You've got to ask yourself tax implications, transaction costs, the market outlook, the money cycle, uh, does it match your goals? Are you of the right age? Can you even re-borrow? Uh, these are all big questions behind this strategy. I certainly use this strategy. Uh, I think it's a great strategy. Step one, step two. Hey, I hope that was helpful. Uh, it may have sounded a little bit like a riddle on a podcast as opposed to a visual uh, webinar. But hey, I hope it uh, made a bit of sense. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode as we talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.